I think it helps to understand where emotion comes from. Great. People often try to pit emotion versus reason together. Mm. You hear people, most of the time when you hear people say things like, don't get emotional, <laughs> they, they're referring to emotion as if it's the worst thing you can have. Mm-hmm. It turns out when we look at lesion patients, uh, people who have brain damage to the parts of the brain that are involved in processing emotion, these people become hyper-rational. They'll fill out a pros and cons list to figure out if they want to eat Chinese food or Italian food for lunch. Wow. It's it's the most rational, quote-unquote, decision-making you can have. But as a result, these people are paralyzed, and these individuals end up having all sorts of deficits and usually have to live with pretty much in-home care, um, even though cognitively they're, they're 100% intact. Welcome to the Habits to Goals podcast with Martin Grunberg. It's time to take control of your life. Are you ready to achieve goals faster and more consistently than ever before? You need the habit factor. You're listening to Habits to Goals, the podcast that helps you create the habits that lead to success. And here is Martin Grunberg. All right, Habits to Goals listeners. Once again, you're in for a real treat. I am here with Glenn R. Fox. He has a PhD in neuroscience and some of the quick background, just so you know, I, you as a listener, I came upon Glenn. He was a referral. I was looking for somebody as I was wrapping up the pressure paradox. I was looking for somebody with his, his specialist kind of background around um, neuroscience and some of the things we'll get into. But I I was looking for somebody to help me with what we were developing. It's called the pressure prism assessment. It's related to the pressure paradox. And it's a way as you go through the prism. So P stands for, and I'll just walk you through it really quickly. P is past Pressure, R is uh, relationships, I is inclinations, S is your spiritual kind of affinity, and M is related to the financial aspect, the money. So with that, sorry, Glenn, for the extended intro. Here is Glenn R. Fox. Glenn, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here, and thanks for having me. It's a treat to have you. I, as I said, you were so helpful with the, um, you know, the collaboration and putting together this assessment, which is just about refined at this point. And it, and I don't even know if I've told you. So I'm hanging it off the site. It's technically live. There are some limitations we're working through. Um, but Glenn, you were super insightful, and I thought, as long as I have the Habits to Goals podcast, and and I've, as I was telling you, I was looking through your blog and some of your writings, and and a lot of your research, which by the way is cited on all sorts of very popular um, media sites. So, in any event, Glenn, thank you for taking the time. I think. I think you know how we kick this off with the Good Things Report. Uh, would you like to start or should I, the GTR? Are you, let's hear what uh, – I'd like to hear what's good in your neck of the woods, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's hear it. So this one shouldn't be too hard to figure out. So Friday I go to Hong Kong, someplace I have never been, and God willing, um, it's a terrific trip. So I'm going to spend – about three or four days in Hong Kong and then another three or four in Thailand, part of an entrepreneur uh, leadership conference. And it's split between the two places because a sister chapter is out in in Hong Kong and there's going to be some learning events out there. So that's my GTR, Glenn. What do you got? Cool. 
Yeah. Um, well, as as I think we've talked a little bit about this, Martin, but I've been <laughs> exploring the world and and certainly working on the the um, the Prism questionnaire with you has been so fun and and I think we've produced something pretty nice. I'm I'm I'm, I'm pleased with it. Um, so I've been uh, looking for all kinds of new adventures, and my friend and I is a data scientist uh, at a finance company, and he and I. Ooh. Launched launched our own data science consulting firm. It's called PhD Insight, nice. and I just finished uh, our first project. We got an invoice going out, so I've, <laughs> I've I this is the good things report. So it is a good thing. Congratulations! That's thank that's, you. I I can remember uh, our first invoice going out many moons ago, and that that's a great day. Yeah, it's that it's. Is, it's fun. I have really no idea what I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> business-wise, but I, I once I get into the data, we have a lot of fun. So, And you said it's, um, it's data, very happy. data for finance? Well, my friend's background is actually in building credit risk models. Wow. He's, he and I went to graduate school together, and he would build these uh, machine learning, these like predictive models for mouse behavior. And it turned out that he became really good at understanding decision-making, and he transferred that into understanding people's financial decisions. What um, the heck? Wow, that could be a uh, whole other episode or, or five. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. He's, he's, you know, they say always team up with someone smarter than you, and I definitely have that. My, my partner there, Dave Herman, is uh, top-notch. So we've been having a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, we don't even have a website yet, but I – in the midst of all the the research I was doing to look for new things out there, new adventures, a lot of people said, "Hey, you know, we have a little data if you want to look at it." And so we, you know, I I've taken the lead on this project and been able to get some insight for a new client, and it's been a lot of fun. So we're we're seeing where it goes, and we're just going one step at a time. I'm very happy with it. That's incredible. It's predictive oh. predictive financial models. Right. That's what he does. That's, okay. that's one of the things we do, but we're also looking at a lot of health tech. Um, and because we have, both of us have PhDs in neuroscience. So we understand emotion and decision-making, but also the broader systems involved in the body. Uh, so, so health and, right. um, kind of the decisions we make around health and, um, also all the data that is being collected by health apps and all these things. It's right in our wheelhouse to help understand that because we have just this broad understanding of not only brains but emotion and biology and all that stuff. So it's it's been it's been good. We're we're excited to launch. That is incredible. And I almost want to do a sidebar offline later and learn some more because it's certainly in the habit factor wheelhouse when you get into behavior change and obviously while there's it's a habit forming device. It does not get into <laughs> uh, understanding, you know, the neuroscience and uh, and all that good stuff behind decision making. So that that is super fascinating. Oh, um, sure. And I just want to say really quick, you know, it's funny you say the idea is to get form a partnership with somebody smarter than you. Just to give myself some credit, that's what I did when I uh, asked you to collaborate on this survey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm fl- I'm flattered. I, well, we'll we'll see, but I um, I'm flattered indeed. <laughs> so and yeah, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. So let's go back because I know you have a lot of history at SC. I believe that's where you got your uh, doctorate, right? And mm-hmm. you've even taught there. So so if you were to kind of Take us back to high school. Where where did this affinity develop? How did you know that that was the direction you wanted to take? Or did you know and, and maybe uh, something happened that steered you that way? Sure. Well, um, probably more of it, – it's definitely been more of an, an exploration by the seat of my pants. Perfect. I, well, I grew up in Tuolumne County, which is a very rural part of Northern California, and my favorite thing growing up was playing soccer and snowboarding. <laughs> so in high school, I wanted to find a college that could do that. Uh, so I ended up going to a college up in North Lake Tahoe. And I actually didn't fit it. I took a, a psychology course there. 
And that course really changed how I thought about things. So I no longer prioritized soccer and snowboarding, go figure. And I retooled. I said, you know, I like this psychology. um, And I, I just thought I should dedicate myself to this and explore it a little better. So I actually went down to uh, junior college at Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo uh-huh. and started doing the general education and psychology. And it was then that I was really into um, reading about philosophy and spirituality and um, kind of trying to figure out what some of the broader themes were and how we make meaning in our lives. <laughs> I, Amen, yeah. brother. <laughs> yeah, I... I I was just very curious about it. That's kind of why I started jumping into psychology. Um, That's beautiful. I got to know real quick and interrupt. Did you did you play soccer at any of these colleges you were going to? I did. Well, it's a funny story. I I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, a lot of soccer camps in high school, uh-huh. and there was this is how old this tells you something how old I am. There was this um, kind of pro am soccer league called U Sizzle U S I S L. Um, and it's now defunct and there was a team in Reno Wow! and the guy that I played for at all these soccer camps said, Hey, why don't you come? I can probably get you on the roster, um, at this team in Reno. Wow. And so I thought, Oh, that's cool. And, but it turned out that the team went out of business, uh, the summer before I enrolled. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I played club level and kind of actually got kind of burnt out on it. Um, and you know, just, I mean, Cuesta doesn't have a soccer team, so I pretty much just hung up the cleats at that point. But Got it. Well, you know, I mean, I was I was fine, but I wasn't going to go much bigger than that. You that's know, a, that's a good career, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I really miss it. But the the, the regular listener knows ha- half the time my uh, it seems like my GTRs are about my daughters and their their soccer experiences. Oh, so. it's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so- yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, sorry for that tangent. Sure. Uh, the soccer tangent. So pick it back up. Oh, yeah. So the other thing that was a little bit weird is growing up in Sonora in Tuolumne County, I uh, really was into working on cars. Uh, <laughs> we we had a lot of old cars growing up and um, we had um, my my best friend's dad ran, had a drag car. And so we had a lot of fun you know, building cars. So when I went to Cuesta, part of the reason I wanted to go there was so I could take automotive technology classes. Wow. So I got really into it. I was, I was taking more auto shop classes than biology classes. Um, and I learned to paint cars and I restored, um, well, I had an old forerunner that I built into a nice rock crawler. And then I had, of course, my friends, um, drag cars that we worked on. So we, we had a lot of fun. And so I've, I found that working on cars had its own mindful qualities, especially sanding and restoring and body work really worked well with me and, and helped me have a sort of a practice and a discipline, something I could master. So that became a really important part of it. I actually went so far as to take the um, ASC engine overhaul uh, exam and I, I passed barely. <laughs> So at one point I was really on my way to becoming basically or to becoming a mechanic. You, uh, uh, I'm going to interrupt again. So you were yeah. the mindful mechanic. You, that's right. You, uh, which by the way, I love, that's the domain right there. The mindful mechanic. So you found a way to really forge a discipline, really an eclectic background between the soccer and the cars and, and then, of course, the philosophy and the the psychology. So, so somehow this all leads you to SC, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I'll speed it up. But no, I, no, that's good. Oh, <laughs> I I ended up um, transferring to UC Santa Cruz, um, and uh, it was a really good fit for the things I wanted to study. They have a very good history of training undergraduates, and we have some family that went there. So I went to Santa Cruz, and I maintained my interest in philosophy and cars, of course, and I took. I ended up taking a cognitive psychology class, which laid uh, out in front of me kind of the the much more structured um, architecture of how we think about things, and it really it lit me up in a way that I thought, oh, this is 
the thing. This is where I need to go. I need to understand how we think about things and, and how we form emotion. So I managed to get involved in a laboratory there. And, um, that was the beginning of my research training. It was just lucky. It was, I, of course, as a transfer student, didn't have a lot of choices, which classes I could take. So I fell into this introduction to cognition class and that's what, that's what set it off. So it was really, uh, just a, a lucky coincidence. I got into this class and the teacher was amazing and she mentored me for a number of years and got me my start in research. So I, uh, studied there at Santa Cruz for a while and then I held a job at Stanford for a little bit and then around that time Antonio Damasio opened the Brain and Creativity Institute and it was the type of place that once I knew it existed I knew I had to be there. Right. I found a way I leveraged some connections and found my way into Antonio's office for an interview and he was just starting the group so there was room I managed to get in there as a research assistant, and that's when I started uh, working at USC. I went from there to graduate school uh, to postdoctoral training, and uh, here we are. <laughs> Incredible. So I'm just I'm processing some of this as I'm looking at <laughs> I'm looking at some of my notes too, and and what I'm seeing is so the intro to cognition. It's like what when you when you were like thinking, all right, I need this is grabbing me. It's getting your attention. <clears throat> what were some of the initial, and you may not remember at this point, but, but like some of the ahas or, or big, it might even be thematic, yep. like the one or two themes where you're like, wow, that shifted my paradigm. And I thought, you know, emotion was this, but it looks like it's this or, um, mm-hmm. you know, something, does that make any sense? Oh yeah, totally. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, what really happened was I had my research in cognition, but my classes dealt mostly with social psychology and social influence. Right. So I was really curious to bridge the gap between these two things. And the mentor that I worked with was so instrumental in saying there's a field called affective neuroscience, affective being, you know, emotion, like affect. Uh Um, And so she's like, you should check out this new field of affective neuroscience. And she connected me with a book or two, and I did some reading. And that's how I found Antonio Damasio's work on how the body creates emotion Mm -hmm. and how the brain processes uh, these emotion signals from the body. So I I knew then that this is the thing I had to do, and that was the really the the big moment for me was was bridging this gap between this kind of phony gap that we have between mind and body, and seeing that emotion emotion is a bodily process and it influences our decisions and our behaviors at every step of the way. This is just ripe for us to use to learn more about how to use emotion correctly and how to use emotion to create the best decisions. And and what are the, some of those key lessons like? I, I know it's incredibly complex and we could be here yep. for days, but, but <laughs> on the, you know, the broad strokes, like what, what are some of the shifts as it relates to emotion where somebody who's quote unquote doing it wrong versus a way to tap in to the positive aspect of emotion. In fact, the craziest thing, and you may not know this, on Fridays, the podcast has a frequently asked Friday, and on Mondays, it's a mind bullet. But but the point is, the last frequently asked Friday was specifically, I kid you not, about how can one use emotion uh, to to help forge habits that will you know help them be successful. So, incredibly, I feel like I've come full circle. So I gave my two cents on that episode, but. What between yeah. Antonio's research and your papers? What what are the ways we can positively use use emotion? I think it helps to understand where emotion comes from. Great. People often try to pit emotion versus reason together. Mm. You hear people. You know, most of the time, when you hear people say things like "Don't get emotional," <laughs> they they're referring to emotion as if it's the worst thing you can have. 
it turns out when we look at lesion patients, uh, people who have brain damage to the parts of the brain that are involved in processing emotion, these people become hyper-rational. They'll fill out a pros and cons list to figure out if they want to eat Chinese food or Italian food for lunch. Wow. It's, it's the most rational, quote-unquote, decision-making you can have. But as a result, these people are paralyzed and these individuals end up having all sorts of deficits and usually have to live with pretty much in-home care, um, even though cognitively they're, they're 100% intact. Wow. This is, by the way, I I could turn it off, drop the mic and I've already feel like that was, uh, that (laughs) was very insightful and powerful, but keep going. That was awesome. Well, it all, it all starts from there. That's, that's where Antonio got his start studying emotion in the brain. He was a neurologist and he kept having these patients that were presenting with these, these symptoms. So he developed a series of tasks to actually understand how emotion leads to decision making. The, the thing he found was that the, you know, emotion is all about the body. You know, really, and what emotion is, is a steadily process, a steady process of events that are taking place in your body that are meant to be interpreted when needed uh, by you and by your brain. And much of our emotional self or our emotional state just kind of goes by the wayside. It's, it's, it's just flowing by like a river, you know, and every once in a while something will come up into our, our, frame of awareness and sponsor what we call a feeling. So this is where we think of emotion and feeling as very close knit, but separate processes that um, allow us to kind of break apart the, the neural basis of these things and to see where emotion works better and where it doesn't. They developed a task called the Iowa Gambling Task where people have to make decisions in this kind of ambiguous space. And it's like a, it's just a probability game. I won't spend too much time explaining it, but basically like any, you know, thing or any task where I present people to make a series of decisions, the, the first thing you're going to do is kind of sample all the range of decisions you can make. And you say, you kind of keep an eye on like, this one worked well, this one didn't work well, but you really don't have a feeling because the space is so complex that you need to sample repeatedly before you can figure out what the rules are for making a good decision. This is a lot like life, right? Sure. We live in a really complicated, high, you know, multi-dimensional, <laughs> you know, infinite minus one variable space for emotion and decision making. Infinite minus one, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, no, no, I love that. That's the first. I think that's the first time I've heard it, and I absolutely love it. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know. So, so I mean, what we have to do is is we can't keep a pro and cons list for every decision we need to make. This is where emotion comes into it, and it's it's where we can learn to use emotion correctly. As emotion will narrow the range of available options that we can think of when we're faced with, uh, you know, some sort of life junction. Hmm. And the key is to understand emotion as being part of a very natural part of your bodily process. And that can inform how you reason about things in turn. So, you know, when we're, you know, one example I like to use is, is how do you know when to stop? If you, if you're driving through an intersection and the light turns yellow, most of us probably don't have, you know, a, a calculator right there telling us like to stop or to go uh, to make it through the intersection before it turns red or to stop before uh, we enter. So this is kind of an example of like you get a feel for it, right? <laughs> you get <laughs> yeah, a feel. You, you know, sure you do. do it. Yeah, you do it over and over again. You kind of get you get a feel that like, oh, I can make that or yeah. yeah. You Usually, know, I check to see if it's a it's a T intersection or <laughs> or not. Yeah, actually, that's a good way to put it because it, these things are circular. You know, you have right. some element of of reason, of course, coming sure. into it. You know, it's like you maybe know it's a busy intersection, so the yellow will be a little longer, and you right. can take those things into account. Of course, sure. I mean, obviously, but the the point is that emotion narrows the the decisions that we can make, and you're not just frozen. You know, and 
I think that when we realize that emotion is is unavoidable, <laughs> it's constant, and it's useful for us to to guide decisions. I mean, why would our biology have evolved these? To have them if they yeah. were bad, right? Right. Exactly. Like I even have a. I always like to say that um, one of my favorite emotions is envy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most people don't think of envy as a positive emotion, but sure. when I see somebody doing something that you know I'm envious of what they have, not in a not 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 in a malicious way, of course, but like wow, that person is really doing well. I really admire you know what she's accomplished here. I say, well, I feel this envy. Why don't I try to? That's a good sign. That means like I should go talk to her, figure out what she's doing differently, figure out what I can do to achieve that same result. Um, so I don't turn my back. I try not to turn my back on any emotion in the sense that, you know, there was probably some point for it or, or if there wasn't a point for it, we still probably have it. So why not try to use it, try to reframe it and try to regulate your emotion to, uh, to, to help you know, in this, this vague world that we live in. And, and so these are great points. Are there, or does this leave your realm because you guys are just doing the research and you're, you're digging up the data, but, but maybe you're not advising like, so the, so the, the question is, or the statement is, so with these negative emotions, what, what is the advice? Is it just to reframe it? Are there tips, tools, and techniques, or is that kind of outside your, your wheelhouse there? Well, it's a little bit outside for now, but this is where I'm going and this is where I aim to take my career is Got to it. understand understand emotion regulation for peak performance. Great. I really want to know, you know, like what what do we do to regulate our emotion uh to to achieve our best or to survive something that is bad. We all will have trauma and loss at some point. Sure. What are the what are the habits we can do to recover? from those moments and to learn, learn the best and to hopefully let them develop into a sense of, of empathy for others who are also going through tough things. Well, and that's what, at least in a large regard, and I know you, and thank you for doing this, you read the, the pressure paradox and that is <laughs> pressure creates all sorts of an array of emotions and, and what part of at least the theme of the book is how we have the choice to kind of direct and refract that pressure either positively or negatively. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering, based on your information, you know, what tips or tools or techniques there there might be. And it could just be as simple as, look, be aware of it, acknowledge it, see if you can reframe it positively. That yeah. sort of thing. I think part of it, and for actually, I want to take a moment to say how much I enjoyed your book. And this is a this is a spontaneous pitch, but I I reference your book regularly, especially as I'm starting a new chapter in life and looking for new things and opportunities. The pressure is real, and so That's your book crazy. is actually <laughs> oh, it's it's really is good. I mean, it, it's it's been very <laughs> surprise, helpful. Surprise, no, thank you. No, That's no, great. I mean, I, I'm yeah. saying like it's it has been a, a tremendous help, and to think like, hey, not all pressure is bad. Lean in a little and see what you can learn about yourself. Right. Um, one of my favorite authors is a, a Buddhist author named uh, Pema Chodron, mm. and she has this quote that says something like, "It's only through repeated exposure." to annihilation that we can learn what about ourselves is indestructible. All right, H2G listener, I want to remind you, today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. If there's one thing I know, and I think Jim Rohn was the one who said this originally, in five years, the difference in your life will be largely based upon two things, the books you've read and the relationships you have fostered. Doesn't it make sense to take advantage of the downtime, whether you're on the road, on a run, in the gym, kill a couple birds with one stone, get a book going, 
It's phenomenal. It's I, the more people I turn on to it, the more uh, compliments I get. Not that I've actually done anything. 180,000 titles to choose from. You get one free book a month, 30% off any other book. Again, check it out. AudibleTrial.com forward slash habits to goals. I'm going to say that again real quick. AudibleTrial.com forward slash habits to goals. And that is the number two. Brilliant. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I've, I've memorized that quote. I actually, I'm not sure if I memorized it verbatim, but that's, that's definitely the, the, the key element. The quote actually is, is an emotion regulation strategy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and similarly with your book and a lot of the research that you did to figure out how we can operate best under pressure, the reappraisal is not just some trick, you know, it's, it's a constant process. It takes a lot of practice. I would say one of my areas of research is in how practicing gratitude and practicing mindfulness can help our lives. One of the things I've really discovered is that it really does take practice. You know, it's kind of like exercise in that, you know, the best day to start exercising was probably yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but the second best day is today. It's today, yeah. Amen. You know, and, you know, when I get a lot of people having studied gratitude and, and the words out that gratitude has these incredible benefits, people say, well, you know, well, first off, most people say, what can I do to make so-and-so more grateful to me? <laughs> so oh, yeah. that I can't help. You know, everyone thinks gratitude is the number one emotion for other people. Right. You know, um, that I, I like to say, you know, don't worry about them. Focus on your own gratitude Sure. And, and make it a daily practice. Make it a mindful practice to go through your, your day and and step by step reflect on the gifts that you have that are helping you you know get through and fulfill the needs that um you know are you know the needs let me rephrase this but think about how um the things you have fulfill the needs you had right so you know it's it's about looking around and figuring out that you know a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we have is really pretty darn helpful. And even if, you know, you're sick or you have, you know, received some very bad news, I think at this time, it's not the time to force yourself to be grateful to get rid of the, it's, it's a time to breathe with whatever type of thing you're dealing with and know that you're still going to work out and find a way to be grateful for it in the long run. You know, there's always something to be grateful for, as long yeah. as you're above ground. So, yeah. and I want to go back, I want to circle back to the gratitude and the research and some of your uh, important findings there. But real quickly, as it relates to your statement about emotion and the people with brain damage, um, <laughs> I I had mentioned this a couple times on podcasts previously, and I, I think it was even in another podcast in an interview. There's something that I've been calling the ineffectual intellectual disorder. And <laughs> you can probably guess what that is, but that's the the ready, aim, 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 overthink, overthink, overthink. These are the smartest people I know. And uh, they're rationalizing and over-rationalizing and thinking and thinking. And so... And I'm not picking on them. I totally understand this. It's it's this idea, though, that they don't take action. So the only name I have is the ineffectual intellectual disorder. <laughs> yeah, it's the and, and it's I'd never heard about the the brain damage thing, but yeah, I could only imagine if you're trying to order Chinese food and you have emotions out of the equation, and you're you're. You're sitting there with a pros and cons list. <laughs> you could yeah. you could be there for a week. Oh, exactly. You know, unbelievable. We, um, I would, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other th- your comment about it being a process, I I just want to say certainly subscribe to that. That's one of the big themes behind the app in the habit factor. It's and by the way, it's it's now learned by whether it's a Hindu spiritualist or, or honestly Benjamin Franklin. Another episode I did. These are these are people who have a tradition of 
refining a virtue, a behavior, even a thought pattern, uh, not overnight, but one day, one week, one month at a time, which is why most of the people who listen to this are probably sick of me saying you have to be, and I rarely say you have to do anything. You don't have to do anything, but you have to be tracking if you really are intentional and you want mm-hmm. to modify the behavior. Absolutely. The final point I want to make, just circling back on some of your earlier comments, related to pressure and stress and, and how to make it good. Well, and you touched on this. I just want to reiterate for, for a listener if you haven't seen it, and I know you have, uh, Glenn, but, but the listener may not. It's, it's Kelly McGonigal's, and I reference it in the pressure paradox. She does a TED talk where she's a behavior psychologist or a health psychologist. And she says, I'm, she starts a talk saying, I'm very sorry. I think I've been giving my patients the wrong information, telling them stress is mm-hmm. bad for them and it'll kill them. And then there's this research out that says, well, actually, there were three groups of people, you know, people with no stress in their life, people with stress in their life who thought stress was bad, people with stress in their life who thought stress was healthy. And it turns out the people in group C who thought stress was healthy outlived even the people with no stress in their life. So. I just thought it was a great way to underscore what you were talking about, um, Glenn, in that the reframing is real. It, you know, it has real tangible results. You're not just playing some mind game. It, it affects right. your, uh, long, you know, it, it affects your well being. So, yeah. I mean, how you think about the world is, I mean, it's kind of everything, right? I mean, what else can you really control? And I'm not sure the extent to which we can gain control over all of our thoughts, Um, but we certainly can, can gain more control than we have and how you, how you think about things and how you interpret the the things that happen makes a huge difference. And that, that study is, is right up there. And it's also something I'd like to see in the gratitude research, if I can kind of improv here on what you're saying. Yeah. You know, one of the things I don't want listeners to walk away from is thinking that you need to fall over in gratitude for everything that you receive ever. You know, there's probably a right amount of gratitude for any given thing. We did this study where we actually held the door for people and looked at how they would reciprocate this, the world's smallest favor of having a door held. And we found that you know, there, there is kind of a natural curve that we have toward repaying people based on how much effort they spend for something. You know, we had, um, people holding the door in the most effortful way you could think of, you know, holding a box and struggling to hold the door and then dropping the box and, uh, (laughs) but still holding the door, like determined to help the people. And in this case, people showed incredible, acts of helping this, this hapless door holder, <laughs> he, they, people would walk back, you know, as far as, you know, 30 or 40 feet to come and help this person pick up the pens that he had dropped. Um, and in the meantime, the people that we held the door for in a very casual manner, they'd say thanks and go on their way. And I think that there is something to be said for this, that the right amount of gratitude is probably more than we have normally, but there can probably be a negative thing, kind of like thinking about stress as entirely negative. There may even be some some consequences, and there's no research for this, so I'm just right kind of going off the cuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, that, but I, I do think that if you walk around going, "I have to be more grateful," it it may not have such a positive effect. You kind of have to let it come to you, and 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 learn to kind of cognitively recognize when to be grateful how to be more grateful for the things you have in a way that it's appropriate. Let's talk about that because that's exactly where I want to go. So this is a perfect segue, but I feel like it jumped a little ahead. And then, so I want to back up. Why is gratitude important? Does it help like, like viewing stress positively helps with our longevity. So, uh, is the same thing to be true with like, what, what are the benefits of gratitude? Why are you studying gratitude? And, 
and then we can talk about whatever we think the right levels are or, or, or a process to be more grateful. Yeah, well, I it goes back to college when I was studying religion and philosophy. Okay. And I found that nearly all religions and philosophies mention gratitude in some form or another. Brilliant. It looks like gratitude might be some universal trait of positive living. When I found this out in these, uh, you know, these works, it inspired me to look at the research on gratitude. And what I found in the psychology research was really profound that practicing gratitude, things like writing, writing thank you notes and delivering them really low tech solutions created big time, uh, results in terms of how people felt about the world. And people who practice gratitude showed fewer physical ailments. They showed better social relationships. They showed, you know, fewer inflammatory, uh, you know, biomarkers, Mm. really amazing stuff. But what I also found was next to nothing in terms of how gratitude worked and how it achieved these benefits. So that's where I stepped in to study the neuroscience of gratitude to look at the machinery in your brain that makes gratitude go, you know, um, and, and what, how that connects to these aspects of the body that are responsible for maintaining health and homeostasis. Yeah. Um, so what was the next part? How to be, yeah, no. So so knowing that those are, and, and I love that that's, so that's the natural segue. Like you, you see across all major philosophies and religions, gratitude is a paramount, uh, emotion. And then you see these, um, biological benefits. And, and then the question becomes, what, what can people do? Uh, how can they be more mindful? Is it, is it a gratitude journal, which some people use? I mean, just, you know, what, what, what are some of those tips or tools or tricks? Yeah, what we found in our experiment that is uh, kind of ongoing, uh, so this is only pilot data, sure. take it for what you will, but it's built on the other studies that have been published. But Great. W- one of the good ways is to to think carefully about how much you need something and how much effort it took to provide it. So think about the things, maybe you received something nice in the last couple of days, even the smallest gesture, someone being... Someone, you know, giving a seat to you or, you know, or even just being friendly, you know, you go to the coffee shop and they, they put a little extra effort into, you know, helping you, you know, get a cup of coffee or something. So we actually do receive things all the time. And what the practice of gratitude is, is to think about how the things that we receive fulfill needs and how it shows other people's efforts to help us. You know, so research has shown that gratitude is the feeling we have when we receive something that comes at effort and fulfills a need. So mm-hmm. to generate gratitude, focus on those two things. Um, focus on how when someone is giving you a gift, if you're so lucky, um, think about their feelings when they were thinking about you while they're choosing this thing, right? right. Um, and think about how even if it's not the best present you've ever received, that it still can show can still fulfill a need that we have to belong and to be taken care of. Um, and that's a good way to kind of generate some gratitude sort of quote top down, you know, with these cognitive reappraisal strategies that are, um, you know, available to us to kind of reframe and rethink about the things that we have. That's perfect. What were those two criteria? One was fulfills a need. What was the other? Oh, how much effort it takes effort. Yeah, that's okay effort it takes. So one of the things, oh, sorry, one, if I might jump in. No, please. One of the interesting things that we see is that it's not just about more gratitude or seeing more effort. So you can maybe try to see like, okay, say you have 10 things that you received um, in the next, in the last week, and you try to go through each one and say, I'm going to see more overall effort. I'm going to just assume everyone's doing more and more and more. Um, and really ascribe the best possible intentions to these folks. Well, it turns out that when we practice, one of the things we see with these um, in our pilot data is that people actually don't just see more gra- more effort overall. They actually get more sensitive to it. So they see 
um, more variability or more, you know, more of a range of effort that people have. In some ways, it might be that they're getting a little bit more, um, quote, accurate in how they see the things that people are doing to help them. Right. I think that's a good lesson for all of us is that part of the gratitude mindfulness practice isn't is to to get good at seeing the range of things that people do and feeling appropriately grateful for it. Interesting. And huh, so when you were talking about holding the door open and and the effort was varying then you saw different varying responses uh, of of the observer's gratitude, right? Right. So if it was difficult to hold the door open, or they then or they were jumping through hoops, then there was much greater uh, gratitude. Right. Yeah. People would spend more effort to. Uh, let me put it this way: the more effort that we spent to hold the door, mm-hmm. the more effort people would spend to to repay that person. Um, but we also saw some limits on it. We, at one point we had people receiving a very friendly door holding. <laughs> I don't know how to say it, but very effortful, very yep. polite door holding. And then we had another person approach, um, the person who just walked through the door and would ask that person if they want to take a survey <laughs> and nobody wanted to take surveys. <laughs> it didn't matter how you held the door for that. <laughs> <laughs> that just tells you that just tells you uh all you need to know about surveys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know, looking back it's it's pretty obvious, but it it shows that there's some kind of we have kind of a natural, you know, instinct toward what is a, you know, the best way to repay people. <laughs> An appropriate response. Exactly. Did you do uh and we're running way long cuz I find this so interesting, so I apologize. Did you do any gratitude studies that involve money? Oh, like receiving money? Either, re- yeah, gifts or things like that. There, I did and not. It's okay if you yeah, didn't. I yeah, was just I curious. No, I, I wanted to look at kind of the more more social gifts, social giving. Perfect. Um, so there are studies that use it. There's a study recently published um, out of Indiana, a really interesting study looking at um, changes in, uh, the brain patterns associated with gratitude, uh, for receiving money. So this was people receiving money and then they practiced gratitude and they looked at, uh, you know, they took their brain gratitude on day one and then they practiced gratitude and then they looked at them again later on after they practiced it. And they saw actually pretty interesting changes in the brain circuitry as a result of practicing gratitude in terms of how they thought about receiving money. So it's a common it's a common way. It's just not the approach that I chose. And there was one I came across the other day. You may not be familiar with it, and I'm not even sure that it was about observers, younger generation observing kindness in a concentration camp. You did you hear about that one? No, no, that's that's right up my alley, though. That's very, yeah, yeah. I should try to look it up, but but it had a powerful effect on the observers um you know it was as though they were to imagine that people that the the acts of kindness that were happening were happening for them to either you know save their life or give them food or something and and yeah it just had an extremely powerful effect and i thought maybe you had some affiliation with that but no, I mean we used Holocaust survivor testimony in our experiment. Wow! Uh, so I should I should find that study, but there are there are interesting benefits to witnessing um, these acts of virtue in others. You know, it's we are natural imitators as humans, and you know, looking at that kind of behavior and seeing how good it is can inspire us to emulate it. Yeah, I was just going to do a quick search. Uh, (laughs) It says USC Holocaust Survivors Memories. Oh, I wonder. That might be my study. Yeah. (laughs) Fascinating. Yeah, it is. There's your name popping up. All right. Well, like I said, we're long anyway, so I'm going to have to table that. I want to have you back. I mean, 
I think your next book is Zen and the Art of the Mindful Mechanic. I think so. I think I want to. I think I'd like to just start a mechanic shop and blow off some steam there. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so much good stuff. So as we come over the hump here, I, I want to hit you with some of my standardized questions, Glenn. Um, how do you define success? Because you're so mindful. It, well, it's for myself. Um, you know, I have a, a kind of a saying that it's the you know, it's a sports related saying. It's a win the home. You have to win the home field. Um, and I've learned so much. I'm married to a wonderful woman, and I admire her so deeply. And so I think very carefully about how well I'm doing as a husband, mm-hmm. and I think about how well I'm doing as a. a son and uh, every other relationship and every other family relationship that I have. Mm. And I work from there and I feel like if, and of course I'm, I'm imperfect in this, but you know, for me personally, it's, it starts and ends with our social relationships and how we take care of the people around us. The rest of it is pretty subjective, you know? So I think success really is defined by how close we are to being our best possible selves. Uh, there's research showing that actually taking, keeping track of your best possible self and like writing down some things before you go to sleep every night to say, what, what do I do tomorrow to be my best possible self? Uh-huh. Incredible benefits. There's a woman named Sonia uh, Lubomirsky at uh, UC Riverside has done this research and it's well done research and it's fantastic. It's really interesting. It's so simple. Write down, what do you do tomorrow to be your best possible self? Um, and, and it has some really good benefits. So for me, the success is, you know, did I, did I achieve that? Did I, was I my best possible self? And it's personally defined. It's not for someone else. Uh, it's for me, you know, to think about what, how, how closely am I matching up with, with what I know I'm capable of. That is so <laughs> damn good. Pardon my French. Thank you. Thank you. Um, honestly, and, and there are just two quick comments. So, so one is, do you just know that relationships are the core or is that from study? The reason I'm asking, and again, I I want to drag this out, but I can't. So, so I did the happiness webinar like, I guess it was last week, but there's a 75-year Harvard you know, research study that basically, and it's still ongoing and it was around happiness, which by the way, I think is the wrong, the wrong target, but we'll talk about that another day. (laughs) And, and the, it's also a Ted or TEDx talk. And the, the net result is the guy said, there's one clear message, Glenn. He says, it's the quality of the relationships that they could go back and look at the data and the people at 50 who had the quality relationships, that was the predictors for whether they were going to be, you know, octogenarians mm-hmm. or, or live to be 100. And so when you – I'm just curious. Do you, do you know that intuitively? Did you learn that? How, how do you know relationships are, you know, quote, unquote, everything? Well, I, I think it's – that. Win, win the home field too. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um I've found that I I learned the importance of relationships, both from research and from personal, you know, experience. Um, There's another researcher named Jonathan Haidt um, at NYU. I think he's at NYU Business School. Um, But he's another really fantastic writer. Um, And he has a book. He has a book on happiness. He also comes to the same conclusion. And this is a book that's based on, you know, again, three decades of good research into subjective well-being, mm-hmm. you know, it starts and ends with how well you take care of the other people in your life and wow. the humility to, um, you know, to do what it takes to help others and to understand the ways that they can help you. Um, you know, I think there's, there's just no denying that we're social creatures. I mean, as humans to, you know, get out of the bind of, nature's <laughs> vice yeah we had to help each other and we had to turn to each other and we developed the brain circuits for doing so 
I, I don't see any other way around um, using that as a key to health. Well, I, I, I mean, personally, I, I didn't, I didn't get it till, I don't know, 20 years ago. I mean, I, I was of the belief that I just need all these idiots to get away from me and then I'm going to get my, you know, stuff done. Right. And, and so, I mean, that's just, uh, a maturation process, but, but I think some people get it and some people don't. And I was just wondering how, how you got it. And I love that answer. The other thing is we could probably do a call in another day about, about happiness and, and things like that, but your statement to be your best self. So if you were to have a, if you were to draw a circle, a pie and divide it into thirds, it almost looks like a peace symbol, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. I, so, I can see it. Yeah. So there's relationships at the bottom because that's the foundation. To the left is awareness, and that's the what what am I doing? How can I be my best self? And then to the right is purpose, and I believe those add up to something very special: peace of mind, contentment, all that good stuff, mm-hmm. which is kind of in some ways beyond happiness, which fluctuates with your day-to-day yeah uh, dramas yeah that's beautiful and and i did the last episode monday or last monday to the listener anyways it was called be like ben ben franklin and that's precisely what he did glenn he he had his 13 virtues i don't know if you know the story and he tracked them from one week to the other, and he would rotate through the virtues, trying to refine his character. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm familiar with it. It's really, it's, it's a good, yeah, well, he was exemplary in so many ways anyway. <laughs> I, I know, but the question is, is maybe, uh, you know, maybe it's no accident. Maybe it's because he was so conscientious uh, conscientious, and and in directing his behaviors and his thoughts and crafting his character intentionally via tracking. Right. So, all right. Woo. That was just, how do you define success? What are your uh, two or three best habits? Uh, best habits. Uh, say thank you. Awesome. <laughs> that should have been predictable. Thank um, you. Say thank you. Uh, people act like saying thank you, you know, costs something, you know, but give a, give a wave to the person who stops when you go across the street and, sure. You know, just say thank you. It doesn't cost anything and it can really help. Um, say thank you. What else do I hobby exercise? You got to exercise. Um, you know, it's one of the best ways for, you know, it's a, it's a mood booster. It's been said a million times, but I, I really try to get out and get exercise. Nothing fancy. You know, I like to get to the gym, but if I need to just walk around the block a few times, go out and go do it, you know, beautiful. Um, that's the big thing. And then, um, what are other some of my habits? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think I'm trying to think of what I. I I'm what pretty I try sure to you I meditate. Know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I try to have. You know, I try to take the time to be mindful sure. of things. I really. It sounds funny, but one of my my new habits that I'm practicing in the last few weeks is really being mindful of my motor movements and to do things very intentionally. If I'm putting my key into, you know, the door lock. I want to hear every little pin tumble over the key. You know, I want to hear the sound of it turning. I want to feel the texture of it. Um, and this has been a really good way to, to boost my mindfulness moment to moment to think about what can I get in the present moment, um, in terms of my, you know, sensory awareness of things. The present moment is really the, the biggest teacher we can have. Yeah, I didn't even get to your whole your empiricist blog and what that meant, and we're not going to have time. Oh. <laughs> it's killing me. Um, we'll have a new, we'll have you to. Got do it. You got to check out Glenn's blog. We'll talk about that at the end. All right. Um, by the way, that that sounds really cool, but it also sounds a bit draining to be that that mindful. I mean, I love hearing it, and it makes me like perk up and then i'm wondering how long i could sustain that you know my my i i believe habit this idea of being mindless is also another great gift and and the reason we can get so much done and we can do things 
um, is because we have the ability to consciously craft and intentionally craft habits that will serve us without a lot of a lot of <laughs> energy and pain. Right. Um, all right, your favorite books? Any like one or two transformative books, Glenn? I am a big fan of Pema Chodron. Um, she has a book called When Things Fall Apart. Oh. Um, and that book, she's a Buddhist author, but everything is so pragmatic. I mean, it's everything she says is so down to earth. Um, that's a book I keep by my bed for, you know, after a long day, if I got a tough day, get some bad news or anything. Right. Cruise through that and, you know, read a chapter any, every chapter stands on its own. It's a fantastic book, and everything she's written is is wonderful. And I I'm a huge fan of hers. When things fall apart, yeah, Woo. yeah, it's a good one. I mean, it's for heavy times, but right, but it's you know, but it it's a good way to build habits too. I mean, it's a good it's a good book for habits for reframing how we think about fear, how we think about suffering, um, you know, and it's it's just really down to earth advice. Nothing crazy there it's about being using the present moment as a tool to learn about who you are oh i love it uh you got another book maybe other book and it's, um, it's okay if you don't well of course you know zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance <laughs> seriously all i was well, thinking the whole time is he's gonna mention it but i, I had, had no basis to know that you would possibly mention that well, well, I mean, I, you might as well just say I went to college. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, it's I haven't read it in a few years, but it really was a great book. And, oh, I love uh, that book. You know, it was a good, it was a good book. I, I'd like to go back and revisit it. Well, I think it fits with some of your uh, inclination, your mechanical inclinations. Um, all right. A favorite website, tech tool, gadget, app, something you can't live without and it can't be your smartphone yeah um well doing all this data science uh stuff there's a software called r studio and um you have r studio and a and a github and a stack exchange account you're pretty much ready to do anything um so i i've been very grateful for r studio it's open source um it's what? every everything you could want to do statistics and visualization. So R Studio, R Studio, yeah, yeah. R. So there's a, there's okay. a statistical package called R. Okay, got it. Um, and R Studio is just a software that's wrapped around it. Got it. I'm yeah. sure uh, <laughs> the majority <laughs> of people can't do anything with that, but that's okay oh, because that, that wasn't the question. <laughs> I wasn't asking. What can they use? All right. Um, I like I like Slack. Slack is cool. Oh, I've I heard great like things Slack. about Slack. Yeah, Slack has been great. That's cool. Um, it's um, like it reminds me of the old school um, AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> it's like That's you so log funny. in anyway. It's really funny. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think I'm just about done. That was super entertaining and enlightening, and and. Yeah, just a joy to uh, catch up with you and learn about some of the stuff you're doing and and glean some of your years of, of research into a, a few nuggets. Um, is there anything you like, you know, whether it's a book, a website, something you want to promote or share, and how can people uh, find more about you? It may just be hit glennrfox.com, but... Uh, let me know what you got. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd be flattered by anybody who wants to take the time to read my website, my blog. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Glenn R. Fox. Um, I think I just did that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and <laughs> I've, I tweet mostly, um, uh, you know, health things. And if I find a study I like, I'm, I'm kind of a rare tweeter. But um, I had a whole run on cinnamon. Do you know how healthy cinnamon is for you? Turns out it's really good for you. Is it uh, anti-inflammatory? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also good for regulating blood sugar. Um, wow. I'm, so, I'm writing that down right now. Extra bonus, listener. Yeah. Think how wonderful the world is when something that tastes as good as cinnamon also happens to be good for you. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really good. So so find Glenn anyway. at Glenn 
And that's two N's, Fox at Twitter and uh, also just straight up dot com, right? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, Glenn. Thank you so much. Any uh, parting shot, any words of wisdom on the way out? Really, I can't thank you enough. I thought that was that was fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm all out of insight. Uh, thank you for having <laughs> me, Martin. <laughs> this has been a blast. Let's do this again. Yes, we got to do this again. I think we only scratched the surface. All right, Glenn, have a terrific evening. And with that, we will see ya. Great. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. All right. That's going to wrap it up. Just a quick reminder before we blow out of here. If you have not yet received your free habit tracking slash building template and you want to get it really quick, like instantaneously, you can go ahead and text me at 33444. And just simply text the word habits. That's right, habits to 33444. So until next time, to your continued success, make it a habit.